are live for another episode of First Strike, brought to you by our sponsor, FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic Gathering singles back for a second straight night because I had to get this man on the show, had to get my man, John Stern, in the house after finishing second GP Toronto with Burn, with what people and commentators perceived as a, a unique little adjustment or tweak to the deck. Uh, before we start the show, I got to also, besides sponsoring, uh, besides talking about face-to-face games, I also want to mention our First Strike Nation group, all our First Strike uh, Nation patrons. If you want to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash first strike and you can read about all the different perks there and at the bottom uh, there's details on how to be a member for the entire year so make sure you check that as well uh, besides john i got andy and alex in the house how's it going guys excellent going good going good okay so john i'm super excited i mean you've got two gp wins under your belt i think is this your second uh, second place uh it's my third i lost to bbd in louisville i think okay. it's my third Okay, and then you, oh, it has to be your third, and then you were second again two years ago, only two years ago in 2016, GP Toronto as well, but that was standard. Um, I think you were playing. Yeah, I know. I was playing uh, someone, someone familiar to your yeah. podcast. Last someone, time you made me come on and talk to uh, Rob Lombardi right after I lost to him, so I thought maybe Dan Ward would be a host this time, but <laughs> not. I, I don't know if the, I even realized that. Did, did I realize that and just planned it? Um, I, I mean, he realized it. I think it was realized. <laughs> um, we had, yeah, Rob Lombardi <laughs> defeated you uh, with Esper Dragons. And uh, unfortunately, I was cheering for you to win, to finally take it, uh, take it all down uh, to be a GP Toronto champion, but ended up falling to Boggles uh, in the finals in, in a very close game. Did he? Um, it was really fast, and I was really shocked while it happened. It was, I thought you had the burn spells uh, to kill him. Did he top deck the, the, the seal? Yeah, I had, I had uh, my hand was like a lava spike, lightning bolt, revelry, which I couldn't cast, and a bridge. And I, he was at seven, so I could have put him to exactly one. I couldn't kill him, so I played the bridge. And then he draws for his turn and says, oh, that's a good top deck. Exactly like that. And then they just wow. kills my bridge, and it's like game over. I'm like, so, you know, he won in two turns later, whatever. And I'm like, did you really top deck that? Because it seemed like... There was no reaction whatsoever. He's like, yeah, yeah, I just stopped that good. Yeah, that's what it, happened. It went really fast on camera, so I wasn't entirely sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, looking at your deck, and I'm not sure if the, like, a lot of the key turns played really fast for me, and I'm not entirely sure if the commentators knew what was going on, but they had, I think one of them mentioned that maybe you could have fetched a green source to be able to cast Destructive Revelry. Was that actually true? Uh, yeah, there was a turn. Um, I don't remember the exact sequence. There was a turn where I, I definitely could have cast the, uh, got the green source. Um, the revelry was mainly, I wanted it mainly for the ley line there. I was playing for the bridge plan. Um, so I, I was a little worried that I would draw an Eidolon and be in a situation where like damage really mattered. Um, so I didn't want to shock myself unnecessarily and I don't know. That's a, that, that was the one key decision that I, was, I wanted to watch over and see. Maybe that was a mistake. But it was something I definitely considered at the time. Um, but you, you haven't gone over to watch over your game, right, John? No, I don't, I don't actually usually watch my games. Um, I probably should. I think it's a good way to, a uh, good, learning, good learning tool. But often they can't see the cards in people's hands. So like you're really just 
listening to see what the commentators say. Um, but yeah, I think I will watch this top eight over again, like in a few days after, you know, it settles in. I, I don't, because there were, there were definitely a lot of comments at Eduardo, who I thought uh, I said last night that he did a perfect job uh, commentating because he knew so much more than I'm used to from, from an average average commentator and he had also mentioned in the last last game i hope it's still fresh in your mind that he would have considered attacking uh with his goblin god into the first strike uh scout i think he had a an umbra into the first strike scout to threaten like basically bluffing a revelry and that he wouldn't want that he wouldn't block basically the first strike the first strike scout i think it was a, i mean a rev- i think it was okay, like okay, so- a, a boggle with a white umbra, uh, umbra on it, and you yeah, had a yeah. goblin guide. And, um, that's and- an interesting thing. I didn't, I did not consider that. That would be an interesting play, um, and it might have been. That might have been a good play. Um, so yeah, you know, Eduardo, you know, he doesn't definitely think outside the box uh, because yeah. maybe losing the goblin guide doesn't really matter too much. That I don't remember the exact situation in the game, but yeah, it was really it. early. It was like turn two, three, and he's like, maybe you could squeak those two points of damage knowing that he probably won't block because you might have revelry. So that, yeah. that was interesting. Andy, you, like, you have a comment on that? Yeah, I remember exactly what happened. He said to play your fetch land and then just attack. Because uh, then you could fetch the green source, and so he knows you have the green source, but I think you played a mountain instead, so you couldn't attack after you played the mountain. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't even consider it. Um, I, like, I was never considering a bluff there, so like, I, I just missed that line. Um, yeah, it's, a good, it's a, probably a good option because it gets to a point where I can't attack, I need a bridge, and I need to burn him out. And the Goblin Guide really doesn't do much. So, yeah, definitely a good option I missed. Okay, well, because like, I really wasn't... Like, I'm always confident that, that you know uh, I have such a uh, high regard for your skill level and, and your knowledge of, of the format and, and like full confidence. When I watch you play, I have just so much confidence in how you approach certain matchups that uh, when... Even though they questioned those key, those few key decisions, I really wanted to to get your opinion on them. So for people who haven't like caught, caught that, make sure to watch the last last match or some key decision, interesting yeah. decisions. I think. And so uh, sounds, sounds like I should rewatch it. Maybe I'll learn something. And I think like again, Eduardo was was on the ball uh, just from his like playing thirty decks in thirty days. I guess. Um, so you ended up taking Burn John. Uh, before the PT, people knew you as, I guess, the affinity guy. Uh, what made you turn to burn? And actually, like, let's go before that. You were, I think, interviewed by BDM on the coverage and said that you basically tested alone. Uh, what led you to that decision? Um, there are a few things. Um, for, well, for one thing, it's a modern PT. So like, I think innovation doesn't matter as much as practice. Um, and I think innovation is where you really need the team behind you. Um, and there were some, I was having some frustrations with the amount of time I was putting into like logistics, coordinating communication, stuff like that. And not really seeing the payoffs I was looking for because, you know, people are busy. They have like jobs and whatever. And like, I was trying to build like sort of data models um, to analyze our standard testing and, we weren't getting enough data for the models to be useful. And I'm spending all this time trying to manage the data model. And for this PT, I felt like, first of all, I needed a break from that um, and that I would not be lost on my own playing modern. Um, and that really what matters is just having a lot of reps with whichever deck you play. So 
that's that sort of led me down that path. And for draft, you were you were okay with just the same local group of of testing. Uh, well, I mean, for for limited. So one of the problems, okay, so the team I was working with, MassDrop, um, people show up on their own. Like, we don't do house testing. We do, like, online collaboration, and we usually meet, like, at the PT, maybe on, like, Wednesday. And that's where we try to, like, have our limited meeting and, like, go over everything. And I feel like if I'm learning things at the limited meeting, it's too late for me to try them on my own and, you know, really evaluate them for myself. So I didn't find I was getting a lot of, out of that meeting just because it was so late. And I've also never felt like I, there was definitely value on being to being on a team for limited uh, and specifically being on that team because a lot of people who are good at it um, and there's some good, good methodologies that they use. Uh, but I also never felt lost on my own and limited. Um, I was always interested in being part of a team for the constructed aspect and felt that left to my own devices, I would still be able to prepare limited. So. With, uh, do you see? Of course, it was like a heartbreaking end to what was a really good start, John. Like, do you see it as a success overall, based on the the prep that you did? And like, I don't know exactly if if you felt you you ran really bad in the second half. So, do you view it overall as the, the, the testing that you did and the decision you make to like work basically solo uh, a success? Um. I don't, I don't know if like I, I had more success because I was on my own. I don't think so. Like I, it was just, it was possible for me to test that way for this PT. Um, once you're, I was 10 and one at some point after winning the second draft. And I felt like, you know, at that point I need to win two of my next five matches, probably maybe two in a draw uh, to make top eight. And I thought like, you know, I'm really good chance, but you know, I'm playing against the people at the top of the standings. I had, three really close matches go against me. Um, there are some play decisions that may have been a factor, but, or some, like, I mean, there was a burning inquiry where I pitched three cards and was left with three line. Like that kind of thing can happen. Um, 11 and five is a good result. I'm not disappointed with the PT. I'm disappointed that, you know, the opportunities lost, but overall it's still a good result. So yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, you know, medium reaction to that. Yeah, might not shift too much uh, one way or another how how you were uh, prepare for your next pro tour, right? Well, the next one's standard, oh, right, right. Um, yeah. Which and but it's also a long preparation; like it's not right after the set release. Um, I think what I've what I've sort of concluded is that a team would be useful. Um, I would like to work on a team, but I do not. I don't want to enter a team situation where they're not like, I'm not able to contribute um, with the organizational things I want to do in the process related things. Um, look, I don't want to enter a team situation that is going to find that I'm going to find frustrating. Um, and it's like, I've worked with some really great players um, on, you know, lots of my, on face to face. I've worked with channel fireball, mass drop, but like people need to buy into the process that I want to do for me to be useful and for me to find the team useful. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that that opportunity exists right now or not. I'm willing to do it on my own if that's the best option. Um, but yeah, I, I really haven't decided. It's a few months away, so. Hmm. 
I'm, I'm kind of excited. I'm kind of excited to see how it turns out uh, for you. Like when I first heard that that you were basically on your own, it, it was I was looking forward to seeing the result of that. And your reputation before the Pro Tour was someone that played a lot of affinity, and your your testing your led you to burn. And some people were were surprised, and a lot of uh, the viewers were were happy, mainly because your last name rhymes with burn and right. get, sure. get sterned. Stern and Burn, a lot of uh, that was happening in the chat. Uh, what moved you towards Burn? Well, I mean, first I'd say, like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm known as an Affinity player because I top 80 with Affinity or I had some good results and I played in a couple of pro tours, but I've also top 80 with John. I've played a number of different modern decks. I played, I started 10 0 with Lantern and GP before losing a bunch in a row. Um, Splinter Twin, I played a whole bunch of decks. So, like, I definitely felt that Affinity was a deck that if I thought was well-positioned, I would play. Um, it was a backup right until the last week, I would say. Uh, I really don't think Affinity is good right now, or especially if I didn't think so before the PT. Um, because So when you're playing Affinity, you kind of expect to win most of your game ones and try to dodge sideboard hate for game two or three, or, or you know win through it. You can still win sometimes through your Stony Silence or whatever. But this right now, the metagame, or before the PT anyway, there's a few decks like Storm and Dredge that are just horrible matchups for Affinity in game one with no sideboard hate. Like, they just beat you flat out. They don't really need to do anything. Uh, Jeskai is also a really bad matchup generally for Affinity. So they're just... I mean, those decks have sort of fallen off a bit since the Pro Tour, so like maybe Affinity's poised for somewhat of a comeback. I think Jeskai is still popular. Um, but yeah, for the PT, I was like, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't want to touch Affinity once I thought that those decks could be popular. Um, and I started testing Burn. So there's a GP in, in Oklahoma City before the PT a few weeks before. And the top eight was a bunch of like Titan Shift and, um, and Tron, big mana, sort of big mana decks that are traditionally very weak to Burn. Um, so I started testing Burn to say, okay, so like there are some teams, like uh, I think Mint Card showed up with Burn one time, Genesis, like Seth top eight with Burn. So I thought there's some teams that might end up on Burn. It's a very natural choice for people who don't know a lot about Modern but managed to qualify some other way. Um, so I just thought it would be a popular deck, and I started playing it online to find out, like, okay, I have a general idea of which matchups are good for Burn, but I want to find out, does it push some decks out of the metagame or open the door for some others? And I was winning enough on Magic Online with Burn and losing with the other decks I was testing, which at the time was mostly Dredge and Affinity. Uh, and not losing a ton. I was like, going 3-2 in a lot of leagues, but, like, struggling to 3-2. Okay. Um, and Burn was, like, like 4-1 almost every every league. So I'm like, okay, well, at some point, as my, my options sort of... I lost interest in various options. I was like, okay, I'll just... I think Burn's actually a pretty good choice. And, you know, I'm working on my own, so I can't play every deck a ton. So I eventually just decided that's what I'm going to do. Um, Andy, do you, quick... Uh thoughts from you do you agree with john's assessment on affinity seeing as you're the uh, affinity champion of actually the first nation even um yeah there's it's certainly not the perfect metagame for affinity like uh maybe the previous metagame was because of grixis death shadow and uh, eldrazi tron but there are a lot of enemies to affinity in game one right now which is as john stated it's like <clears throat> the biggest hurdle to overcome is like if you are a dog in game one, then you're really going to be a dog in the match. Like, you're, 
the main thing you're trying to benefit off of is being so favored to win that game one. So these other decks having an edge on you in game one is is pretty rough, especially when they they're pretty popular. But a lot of them have fallen off uh, in favor, fallen out of favor since then. So maybe Affinity could could make a comeback. I think I would just play it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think it's better now. Like, I don't think Storm Storm did well at the PT. I don't think Dredge did particularly well. Like, Storm, for example, is a great matchup for Burn. So the fact that Burn, I mean, Burn was heavily played at the GP as well. Yeah. Um, I saw a lot of it around me. So, you know, if Storm falls off, you know, that's, it's an opening. Uh, and Affinity is still a great deck. Uh, Fatal Push makes it a little worse, I think. Like, you can't just rely on the Ink Moth kills. Even against a deck like Tron, they're splashing sometimes for brutality and push. Um, but yeah, overall the decks, I mean, it's still a player in the metagame and I think it's better now than it was at the PT, but that was, that was my reasoning for dropping it for the PT anyway. Yeah, it makes sense. I could say that personally as a blue white control player, I'm a lot more scared to play against burn than affinity. It's like one of my best matchups versus one of my worst matchups. And, uh, You're playing that's, that was, uh, with like semi-popular that. at the PT. You're playing blue white with like Field of Ruin, like the the standard version, or like you have your own deck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, standard blue white. Hmm. Uh, Alex, let's for for Burn. Uh, did you see like I don't know? Some people say they were mind blown on coverage that John had in steering bridges and ley lines of sanctity in the board. Some people say it's not new technology; it's pretty old. Uh, to you, Alex, did you see this before? I mean, I've seen it here and there. Um, it is an interesting sideboard plan, and it was just kind of funny, uh, especially the semifinals match, um, John, where you had like the bridge and the ley line in play against the um, World, World Spine Worm tokens. It was just like a funny board state uh, that everyone was kind of talking about the sideboard plan because of that match. Um, yeah, it was yeah, really, I like to hear. That was a weird situation. I thought I should suicide my Eidolon into the worms at some point for about three turns. And I only didn't because he flashed back a Faithless Looting at one point and took two damage. And I'm like, well, if he's going to shock himself if my Eidolon stays in play, maybe I should leave it there for a few turns. But I, I thought I would get into a situation where like, I couldn't cast spells to empty my hand or I'd kill myself. So I don't know. But I felt like I could probably still suicide it later. But then he just killed it with a lightning axe. So. <laughs> yeah. I actually really re- I remember that spot because I started thinking what happens if uh, they just stop casting spells? Yeah. And then just just wait to use the 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 life gain shoal, right? Uh, and so I was wondering, I was thinking the same thing is that maybe oh, I think he might have to attack with his Eidolon. But then like you said when he started casting those spells, I, I was like, "Oh, phew. He's not just going to play this super long game, which I thought might be a good strategy for him." Well, the turn that I thought it was going to be correct to suicide the Eidolon was the turn immediately after he, like he, the turn he, he flashed back looting. If he didn't flash back looting there and just pass, I think I was going to suicide my Eidolon. Um, but yeah, so once he did that, I'm like, well, I guess I'll see what he does next turn. And then he just cast a few spells. So I don't know. But, you know, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure Andy knows where I got the uh, incinerating bridge technology from. Ooh. Yeah, f- from 2001. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you mean, 2001? It's a it's an old strategy uh, for for burn burn s decks to have uh, that in in the deck. It, it's been around for a long time, but a, a local player from Kingston, uh, John Wasson, uh, played it a lot, and I think told John Stern about it. I'm not sure. 
Yeah, basically, I talked to John after the. Uh, I was trying to get cards from my friend, and you know, John's good hookup for people who need cards. Um, so <laughs> he uh, he basically said so we talked about you know he was happy to see me playing Burn because like he's played Burn forever and he's always had bridges. So we were talking about Cyborg, and and he basically convinced me to give it a shot in a couple leagues. So I, he had three bridge and four ley line. Um, but yeah, so it's his technology, John Watson. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, uh, what's, what's nice about it. So like the two ley lines I played, they really only replaced the two core firewalker. And I hated having core firewalker in my deck for the PT. There was like, there were, there were like 30 matchups to consider for modern. And that card comes in in exactly one. And it forces you to fetch proactively your shock yourself to get white sources, even when you don't have it in your hand. But at the same time, like if you don't have a firewalker when your opponent does, like you just lose if you don't have a, you have to board and path to exile and stuff. So I thought, okay, Leyline is also going to be really good in the mirror. Um, it's even good on four mana. Um, but yeah, obviously it's much better in your opening hand and it can come in some other matchups as well. So like making the two for two swap there really was kind of easy for me. Um, like I do want Leyline against Lantern, for example. Um, it, against some of the brutality decks, it's good. But uh, bridge. So the other the other problem I was having with my sideboard was um, searing blood. I didn't. I never liked deflecting palm, um, especially against decks like Shadow that are going to Inquisition you at some point. Um, it's good against Infect, but Infect wasn't a major threat, like a major player, and it's also it's a really good matchup. Um, but the searing bloods, I was bringing them in against you know decks like Hollow One because they can kill like the Flame Blade Adept or whatever. But it was really just an okay removal spell, even against humans, like it sometimes does, it doesn't hit the Mantis Rider, it doesn't hit like some of the things you need to kill. Um, and Bridge just seemed like against the list that people were playing, that a lot of people would have, would be taken completely by surprise and would have no outs to it. Um, and I played a few leagues and, you know, it was basically concession on the spot against a few decks. Like Hollow One, I mean, they just can't beat it. They'd have nothing. Um, I thought it would be, Humans, their their outs are so limited. Like, if they don't know about the bridge, they probably have no outs game too. Um, if they know about it, they might leave in a Kessig Malcontents or bring in a, a Renegades. Um, but it's really hard for them to do that in the dark when like most people aren't playing bridge. So yeah, I, I think it was a really great idea, um, specifically for this tournament. Things might change. Like when people don't know what you're sideboarding, I mean. Like, for example, you play against Blue Moon, you don't know if they're going Madcap Experiment into uh, Imperion, and do you bring in your path to Exiles? Like, I, I was facing that dilemma a lot. Even at the PT, I lost to Pascal Viren, who only showed me blue-red control game one. He didn't show me Pyromancers. And I'm like, well, if he has Madcap, I, like, I'm not, I don't want to bring in a Revelry against, you know, blue-red. And I don't really want a path to Exile to kill a Snapcaster Mage. And then game two, like, I lost a thing in the ice, so... Um, having having a surprise cyber card like that can be really useful. I do think it's a good change right now. Uh, but yeah, credit goes to him. Um, it was. <laughs> we're gonna we're actually gonna get the the person in top four probably at the, near the end of the show. And uh, you mentioned how Bridge was able to lock. So I think you had Bridge and Leyline in one okay. game. He was like constantly looking. He was picking up his cyborg, looking at like it just as a viewer. I'm like, I'm hoping he has no outs. I'm hoping just John has him locked out. <laughs> well, and, uh, 
but it ought to be it, the case. It's a weird situation because we we exchanged decklists, right? So he knew I had access to bridge and leyline. I knew his that if I have those cards, that his outs were specifically two shattering spree, which he may or may not bring in, and he had one engineered explosives, which he, he could only cast on three with his one metamorphose. Um, so. Yeah, when he, I mean, he, but he also, he looked at his sideboard in game two as well. And when he looked at it in game three, when I had them out, like his face sort of fell, but I, was, I still wasn't sure. But like my, my, you know, my friend who's a poker player who was watching the audience, Dave Rude, like he was like, oh, that was a tell for sure. I knew that he was don't go dead to the bridge. But even at the end when he's like, you know, desperate, desperation, like, cast metamorphose i'm like oh god not the not the engineered explosives but yeah okay I, I, he'll, he'll actually come on later on so i can't wait to ask him uh sure. for his for his thoughts especially that i guess you, you didn't have time or to, to ask him then um after the match yeah i mean i i don't i don't remember like i i think when someone like i probably just said you know congrats on qualifying and like Good match. I, I don't really want to like get into too many details with someone who's right, like right. took a hard loss. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So we'll we'll get him on the show. Um, let's see. So there were a few other uh, unique, I guess, parts of your deck that that you didn't uh, that we haven't covered yet, which is uh, Vexing Devil. Uh, you, the one copy of Vexing Devil in the main. Yeah, I played. I played. Um, I played three copies at the PT. Um, so Vexing Devil is an interesting card. I, I was finding that when I was testing Burn Online. Um, so the way people think about Burn is that you need to draw your seven three damage Burn spells to win the game. Um, you just count to 20 or 21 or whatever. Um, but I was finding that was not the case in a lot of matchups. Um, there are matchups that try to kill you on turn three or four, and you need to kill the, Like every mana you spend has to be doing damage. And a card like. Grim Lavamancer gives you such a bad rate of return on that. Um, and the two damage burn spells like Skullcrack is also pretty bad. Um, and there's also decks that once they cast, there's something that they're going to do that's going to change the flow of the game. Um, and it could be like hitting you with the Worm Coil Engine and gaining six life. It could be like Helix, Snap Helix. Uh, it could be like resolving Witchbane Orb. And if you have not killed them or put them in a very bad position at that point, you basically cannot win the game. Um, so every mana you spend has to be effective. Um, and I wanted to have less two mana spells in my deck. Um, so Vexing Devil was basically, like, I, I don't think it's, you know, the next, the next best thing or anything. Like, it's, it was one of the worst cards in my deck at the PT. But it was a one mana spell that would often do four damage. And it looks really bad when you draw it and they have, like, a bridge out or they have, like, four removal spells in their hand or they have like a you know a blocker like a kitchen fiends or something but i mean i would say that most times you cast it it's a four it's a four damage lava spike and sometimes and the times when you cast it where it does nothing like i think i did cast it um against i think it was against dan in the finals where like i was trying to top deck something and i drew that and i'm like i played it with a bridge out and he's like yeah obviously it stays it yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah it looks really bad when it's bad yeah. And it's it's a it's a card that gives your opponent a choice, but like it's not it's not a split card so much. Like it's not you know exactly what you want to happen when you cast Vexing Devil. 
Right. You want them to take four damage. That's what you want as a burn player. You're not trying to get a better wild in the cattle. Like you're not hoping that they make a mistake and give you a creature that they shouldn't. If they don't have an answer to Vexing Devil in their hand, they're taking four. That's what you want. And if you play like a Swift Spear and they have a bolt, it also does nothing. So you're sort of taxing their removal spells. You play your, your other ones first, and then sometimes Vexing Devil is, is four damage, and that's basically what you're trying to get. Um, it's a little worse now after the PT that humans is more popular and stuff like that because they have more blockers, So and Love Mancer is better. So I played. I went down to one. I played one Love Mancer main, and I added the 20th land. I, I think the 20th land is important. I, I knew that before the PT, um, but everyone was running 19, and I just wasn't convinced that I had enough data to like make the change. Okay. Um, but I think that was a mistake. I think I should play 20 land. Certainly with bridge and um, sideboard, you need the extra land as well. well with people having like tournaments uh, that where, where the unbannings are still not in effect, they pretty much safely take what you play at the GP and, and just play this last tournament before Bloodbraid, Elf, and, and Jace come back? Um, you mean would I recommend any changes to the list, basically? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I, I don't think the unbannings affect burn that much. Um, like, the fact that Jace is in the format is not going to change what Burn's trying to do. Um, right. Like, the blue-white decks will probably just board it out against you. Uh, maybe not. Probably. Um, maybe they'll keep one or two in. Uh, Bloodbraid also is not really a good anti-burn. Like, I don't think the deck... I don't think Unbanning's changed the deck too much. What they might change is what decks are popular, which might mean you no longer want the Lavamancer main, something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, in the pre, pre-unbanned metagame, um, I don't think there's a lot I would change. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just the, the one Vexing Devil, one Lavamancer, those are some flex slots that could change depending on what you expect to face. Um, I could see playing a fourth. I do think Leyline is becoming a little more popular. I, I could see a fourth revelry. Um, I think that the bridges are still good, even though they're more of a known thing now. Right. Um, it's really hard. Like we had decklist in the finals, but like there's there's <laughs> no way like Dan Ward boards in Seal of Primordium for game two against Burn in the dark um, without knowing the decklist or having seen me have them in play. Uh, he probably would have for game three after losing to a game two, but I don't know. The, there's, I, I think the deck list is still good. I don't, I don't think I have any strong recommendations to change it. I mean, the Vexing yeah. Devil could go if, if you have something else you want to play. I don't really like playing just more skull cracks, though. I think you need to try to do things that are one mana. I like I like the way it looked. I like the all the games that were on coverage that you were on uh, before the, the the Boggles matchup, the finals matchup. Eduardo had, had mentioned how he felt at least game one. The matchup was abysmal, and I think a lot of people in chat were saying like it was a terrible matchup for you. A lot of people thought that I wasn't that uh, before. I'm, I'm just gonna <laughs> give my opinion and, and risk looking like a fool uh, before getting your take. I didn't think it was well. You were on the draw, but I I wasn't convinced that you were. It was that bad for you on the on the play. Obviously, his deck list uh, uniquely has. I, I don't know if it's a common thing right now, but to have ley lines in the main, if they have that, that's like a huge 
significant edge. But I found like in the past, sometimes like if you're on the play, they really need David Cornette pretty early. And if you have a well-timed skull crack, even that like won't, won't allow them to just completely crush you. And then in games two and three, I felt like they were, they were really close. It came down to him having seal versus, versus you having bridge. So how did you view the match? Did, were you, did you feel a huge underdog? Um, well, you mean for Dan Ward specifically or for the Boggles matchup? Uh, okay, let's, let's just do both. Go with uh, Boggles in general. So, so Boggles, well, so I think that most of them do have Leyline main in some okay. number. Um, they also often have more than just Daybreak Cornets for Lifelink. Uh, like sometimes they play Unflinching Courage. Um, once in a while, Spirit Link, see, right? Yeah, one Spirit Link or something like that. Spirit Link, I think, is mostly in the cyborg. Um, but I mean, you could see it main. Thing is, also with Daybreak Cornet is even if you have like that well timed Skullcrack, you can't attack back. It's still there, so mm-hmm. it's it's hard to finish. I think it's a pretty bad game one matchup. Certainly worse on the draw. Um, if they don't know what you're playing. They have because their deck relies on you know a bunch of different pieces. Like they have to have their creature. They have to have some or like they they will have to keep hands in the dark that don't have good the good plan against burn. Like if they just have like a like a a, a scout and like an ethereal armor and you know a umbra, like they, they have to keep the hand in the dark. Um, so maybe you get some percentage points that way. Uh, on the play, if you have a really good draw, you can get some points. But I think my game one matchup is quite bad. Um, and I think probably my overall matchup without the bridges is quite bad. So it was certainly not a matchup I, I was looking to play against. I don't know what the percentages are. I hadn't played any actual games with bridge against Boggles. So like that was just theory. Um, yeah, I... I mean, I, I wasn't really thinking about are my matchups good in the top eight. I was just trying to win them all. Um, but yeah, I think I think like of all the decks I could have faced, that's not one of my that's not one that I'm happy with. I, I, just myself. Um, I, I was just sad on chat. I was rooting for you all the way and seeing everyone uh, feel like it was a foregone conclusion that you were going to lose, John. Maybe sound like, come on, I'm just like trying to find any way that any scenario that I think you could win. And, um, yeah, like, hoping that he just... I mean, it was close. Yeah. Um, Hoping he doesn't have, like, Daybreak Cornet in some key spots. And then um, it was really close two and three. Like, two, you had Cornet, and he has Spirit Dancer to try to draw to the seal. But then you have Double Bridge. So that that was awesome. (laughs) And and then, like, you know, you could have easily won game three if he didn't rip uh, seal off the top. So... And then even in, in game two was interesting because he was attacking you with uh, one ones boggles, and then you you just had to sandbag. You, you kept destructive revelry just in case they had leyline, but then you still had to use it. But then you kept drawing lands anyway, so he giving him time to draw to yeah. one of his two seals. So that's what made it exciting, and uh, it looked a lot closer than I thought. Most people thought it would play out, but who knows how how it would actually play out over a, a larger sample. Um, Alex, do you have any questions for John uh, considering Burn? Uh, no, I think you covered everything. Um, yeah, 
on the on the bridge and the, the ley line sideboard thing is a part of it like burn doesn't want to sideboard too much anyway so you might as well make use of those sideboard slots to have really high impact cards um well i i i think so so the bridges took the place of searing blood which i mean if you have searing blood in your in your sideboard you certainly it's it's a pretty good improvement against small creature decks um so it's just a little bit of picking of the battle that you want to fight fight and i think I mean, I, I mean, it, it's hard to think is like it's hard to sideboard with burn because it's a very redundant deck. But when you do want to sideboard, when the idolons are bad, you definitely want to cut them. When the searing blades are bad, you definitely want to cut them. Um, but you can over sideboard too much. Like I don't think you want you know four lavamancers or anything like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything from you, Andy, on the burn deck as we wrap this up? Uh, no, I think you covered everything about the burn deck. It's a good deck. All right. Uh, moving on to something else. Uh, dodge, no, dodgeball's on. <laughs> oh, God, dodgeball. <laughs> I have a match later, you know. Yeah. John, John has a dodgeball. Um, in, in, random topic. Uh, we're trying to think. I was trying to think of different nicknames for John because... Um, a lot of the uh, he's garnered, he's gathered a bunch of troll nicknames in his uh, career. Uh, name even even on coverage, they say it. They either call you the grandfather of Canadian magic or or the godfather of Canadian magic. And he reminded me of, of an old classic in uh, Father Time, and uh, it, it was nice to see people get excited, call you like. Get using words like get stern, get burned uh, during the PT coverage. Um, but hopefully, I, I don't know if anyone in chat ha- has has a sweet uh, new nickname for John. <laughs> Andy, what's your favorite out of the bunch? Oh, the favorite? Uh, it's got to be just the grandfather of Canadian magic. <laughs> the Peyton Manning of magic. Oh, the Peyton I've heard Man- that one before. Yeah, I've heard that too. I don't know why. Because I bring a, a, my notes to the table or whatever. I'm really I think, organized. I think it's maybe like the Vinny Testaverde of, of Canadian <laughs> magic. <laughs> I'm going to play it until he was four. Hey, he could, be, he could be the Brady of magic at this point. So um, Brady's got too many Super Bowls. Peyton <laughs> <laughs> um, Fanning. For sure, for sure, your reputation, John. Uh, since I known you, was someone that prepped a lot, had a lot of notes. Uh, randomly, sometimes when I would be in the same car or hotel room, at, uh, you would like randomly wake up at really early to do your detailed sideboard notes. I remember that you'd be up at like five or six a.m. Yeah, I I was always like that. I mean, I always felt even for like in school for exams that the time, like the extra few hours, was more useful than the few hours of sleep if you didn't feel fully prepared. So I'd be willing to do that. Um, I'm not, I know people are like cyber plans have a limited use. I like to have a basic plan that I can deviate from. I like to make sure I've thought about every matchup that I could face, even if, you know, the plan isn't perfect. Um, So yeah, I I'd like to be prepared. Um, We've got, okay, just to, to move on from this, but we had Stern Mentor, inventor of the ensnaring bridge burn oh, technology. <laughs> yeah, in the chat. Um, but let's move on for that. During the GP, um, Lucas Yao, a friend of ours, uh, had something unfortunate happen to him, and I'm, I'm just going to quickly read through his Facebook 
post, which is part of it. He started 11-0 with some favorable bounces. Got a game loss in round 12 for Mark Cards. Foil Spellbomb, one of three. Given how, how little I play now, I find the current rules and enforcement absurd. By the cr- criteria the judges use, I can say I think everyone in the tournament has marked cards. I was also frustrated that they have ample evidence that I'm obviously not seeking advantage and they just want to avoid using any discretion. Now that I'm on the more casual side of things, I could see why this could be irritating. Hmm. What are your thoughts on this, John? Uh, well, I don't know too much more than what he wrote. Um, I mean, I know Lucas. I think that the chance that Lucas was trying to get an unfair advantage um, was absolute zero. There's no way he, he was trying to do that. Um, he, when he says that he's on the more casual side, like he doesn't invest so much time in like planning his tournament. He's just playing mostly for fun, still trying to do well. Um, and he probably just had a foil spell bomb, and that was the only one he had, so he played it. Um, my my take on the foils, like whether or not it should be a game loss, like I, I don't really like I don't know how marked it was, I don't know anything like that. Um, I think that it, the foils are very frustrating for me as a player um, when they get they get bent and they pop up on top of your deck, and you can sort of see when it's going to be drawn, or like it's bent enough that like when you just cut the deck, it will come to the top more often. Um, I've, I've called judges on my opponents before when I thought their foils were marked and they only had lands as foils and stuff like that. To try. And I don't, I don't want them to get a game loss. I want them to just not get any advantage. And I don't want to decide as, as a player which of my opponents are trying to cheat me and which ones have an innocent mistake. So I, I would just want... Ideally, I would just like them to be replaced with proxies, uh, but they won't they won't do that. So yeah, it's just a frustrating it's a frustrating rule. Um, I I mean, I would be frustrated in Lucas's spot. I would be frustrated in the position of his opponent. So yeah, I, I don't really know a better way to deal with it. I, I would wish they they just did not allow you to play with foils at major tournaments, but you know they sell the cards. So what what would you define as major? Uh- PTQs up, like RPTQs up or GPs up. Well, I, okay, so I, I guess what I mean is any competitive tournament because I think if you are intentionally playing with marked cards, you can get an advantage, and it's so hard to determine intent. Like I think Lucas was frustrated a little bit because, like I've had it happen a number of times. I've called the judges on my opponents, and they don't get game losses. So there's obviously a line where they can just issue a warning or like tell them they have to replace the card, but in Lucas' case, they just straight up gave him a game loss. So that, that's just not, I mean, there's no consistency there. Like, I don't know why Lucas got a game loss in that spot, because every time I've ever called a judge for that reason, they've not got a game loss. So I think he's mostly appealing for consistency. Uh, in my opinion, if, the, if you have a very small number, number of foils that are marked, that is an advantage that could be gotten and they can't decide if you're trying to get it so that should always be penalized that's that's the way i feel and i think if like cards always do get like my sleeves are marked by the end of a tournament there's almost nothing i can do about it i can't can't replace them every round um and yeah if you stare at the corners of the cards there's probably some patterns there but i mean i think the onus on you if you decide to play foil is to really make sure the card isn't marked like a, a flat foil is okay like i mean 
it's still a different thickness. So it's still probably possible to tell by feeling the card, but I mean, I think that's, we're willing to put up with that. Um, but I think like a, a slightly bent card, um, is a bit of a problem. And if it's, if it's foil, then you really need to make sure that it's the same as your other cards. Uh, do you foresee any, like you would like to see this rule be changed, but do you foresee them doing it? No, I don't. I mean, people love their foils and that's one of the ways they sell, they sell packs and promote tournaments is by creating and marketing these foils. So I, th- I think it would be, be a massive outcry if they said you can't play foils at a tournament, like whether it's an <laughs> F&M or a GP or whatever, you know, right. people spend double, triple the price of the card to get it. Or, you know, they went to a special event or whatever. Like you can't tell people they can't use their cards, but right, it's right. frustrating from my perspective. Alex, you want to chime in? No, I think you're completely right. About it's on the onus to the player to make sure that you don't have a marked deck, marked cards. Um, there's the quad sleeve taking turns player. Oh, you yeah, know, that guy really has made sure that he's, he's gone out of his way to make sure he's not going to have more cards in his deck. So, well, to be honest, there. though, I mean, I played against, I played against him at the GP. Uh, he did a pretty reasonable job of shuffling his deck. He clearly wasn't, you know, like some people, they like to separate clumps and then shuffle, and then you really have to make sure you shuffle enough. They shouldn't let you do that, really. But he wasn't doing anything like that. He was completely above board. But it's really hard to shuffle his deck. Like, you can't hold it in your hands. You can't mash the cards together. Like, you can get a judge, but the judge isn't going to sufficiently randomize it either because it's just it's too hard. Um, so Yeah, yeah. maybe you don't need to be quad-sleeved, but at least the yeah. hard inner sleeves that um, I know people were talking about to keep the, the foils from bending or curving. Um, that seems like something you need to do if you want to play with foils. Yeah, they, there's also been different foiling techniques, I think, over the years, and some maybe are better than others. I don't... I don't know. I, it, yeah, it's just a pet peeve, I guess, of mine. Um, <laughs> but in, in terms of like Lucas's situation, like, like there, if there's either there's discretion or there isn't, and it would be nice to have a standard. Um, that's okay. all I guess I really have to say. Andy, uh, my favorite point that John made was that as a player, he doesn't feel like it's his job to t- determine whether or not his opponent is uh, what their intentions are. And I agree with that. I think if you notice something, you have to call it out. It's been a, hu- a huge pet peeve of mine in the last few years is the introduction of the flip cards, because I can see through almost every single sleeve. I, every single sleeve, except for Black Dragon Shield mats, I can see through. And every tournament I sit down at, I will sit down against my opponent. I'll look at th- when they play a flip card, I'll flip it over. I can see through it, and I have to call a judge. If I don't call a judge, I am cheating because I know that there's an advantage that could be gained and I can gain that advantage as well. And I'm not supposed to be able to have that advantage. So every tournament, I'm forced to just call a judge on all these players because I can see through their sleeves. And it's the same thing with foils. I I played at an SCG, an opponent who is just very clean player. I recognize who they were and they played three basic lands and they were very curved, incredibly curved. And so I look at them and I, all I can say is like, listen, I have to call a judge because I'm looking at the top card of your deck and it's like in half, like I know you're drawing a basic land. It's not fair. So I call a judge and the judge has to give him a game loss. 
And then for the rest of the match, my opponent treats me like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing with flip cards, especially when you go to like like a PPTQ where like you're the known player and then you sit down against this guy who's just excited to play against you and they play their search for Ascanta, you flip it over and you tell them that they lost. <laughs> I I wish there was a I wish something was done better. I think this shouldn't keep happening. So maybe there needs to be better announcements. Maybe if you have a friend who plays with foils, you need to let them know about this kind of thing. Because it's such a feel bad. Like your cool, super unique cards that probably are some of the cards you're the most proud of or more m- most enjoy owning are going to get you in trouble. Yeah. And having something that's supposed to be like a positive about the game for the, like collectors who like that kind of thing end up being a thing that makes them upset or mad is exactly the reason people stop playing games. <laughs> I like that. Um, not really surprised that people treat you like garbage since you're the original, one of the original members of Team Scumbag, Andy. <laughs> Listen, they said remember your own trigger. They said, they told people, remember your own dang trigger, and they didn't remember it. <laughs> oh. Andy played, uh, played, talking about the flip cards, I played the last GP Toronto where I was playing green-white. I was like, I had the same frustration as Andy, maybe not to the same extent that he has it. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm, not, I'm just going to play with checklists, and I put my avises in, I, not, not check, whatever, the checklist card, that, whatever it's called. So I, I replaced my Avicens with those. I replaced my Lamhole Pacifist. But I was playing Westvale Abbey, and I, I didn't even think, oh, this is a flip card. So I had whole oh. checklist except for my Westvale Abbeys. <laughs> and then I'm playing feature matches, and, like, I, I don't know, it probably looked pretty bad. But they, were, they were face-to-face sleeves that I can't see through. I don't have Andy's X-ray vision. But uh, I also had an interesting situation at GP Costa Rica where my opponent played, a, uh, I think it was a Jace, like the flip Jace. And he, like, I, I didn't really pick up the Jace to see, but he, he was playing those red, the red ones that you can very easily see through. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you can see through that card. So I'm like, okay, well, let's take a look. Call a judge. You could so easily see. And the judge is, like, going to issue a game loss. And the opponent, my opponent's like, well, they don't have any checklist cards. I'm like, what do you mean they don't have any checklist cards? He's like, yeah, none of the dealers had checklist cards. So. What they ended up doing was not issuing the game loss because he couldn't get a checklist card from the vendors. And some judge he had talked to at some point had said, okay, we'll just play with the sleeves. Like, not replace the sleeves, not, like, do something else, but just, yeah, just whatever, just play the tournament. What? So because the judge had told him it was okay, he had played the whole tournament with these sleeves you could see through. But whatever. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. What? Um, let's, let's move on to uh, still sticking with the GP. John, uh, do you have any quick thoughts on the the eight round day one structure? Any quick, whether you like it or not, or are you pretty indifferent to that? Uh, well, I mean, so so this is the first time I played a constructed GP with the new the change. Uh, you play eight rounds day one, um, and seven rounds plus top eight on day two. And the cut is to six two. So I was not one of those people who were who was like, I I hate the fact that six threes get to play day two. Like when I play when I six three a GP, I would like to play day two. That's what I'd like to do the next day more so than 
any any side event or just hang out. I want to play day two. And yeah, I need to, you know, five one for for like pro point or whatever or six oh for cash, but like I came to play a competitive tournament. I want to keep playing. Um but having said that, I think that the long day one was really draining. I really by the time like round six or seven was over, like if you have buys and having buys is great like I have three buys, it's it's a great advantage. But like you don't start playing till like two PM. And right. you still wake up at a normal time because the next day you have to be up at nine um or eight or whatever to get the tournament. So by the end of the day, like you finish, you're really tired. You didn't want to play magic for the last two hours. A lot of restaurants are closed. Uh, so yeah, I think having eight rounds on day one was a much better experience. Uh, six, two is much harder. It feels much harder to get. Like you take your, I took my second loss in this tournament, uh, round six. I went win, I went three buys, win, loss, loss. And I had to three Oh, just to make day two. And yeah, but I, th- I think having eight rounds day one was great. I think day two was really long. Um, it felt really draining, but at the same time, I guess the whole tournament ended around 8 p.m. So overall, I think it's an improvement in terms of the distribution of rounds. I think that overall improvement would be to have one less round somehow. I, I don't know how they do that. They can't. But um, like I think I think eight rounds is enough for one day, and I think six rounds plus top eight is also enough but yeah i mean i'd like the change overall um i think cutting at six two is probably good probably people are gonna be happy with that so yeah no complaints you like you like eight seven more than nine six i I remember messaging alex uh, i was excited for alex because he was i believe x1 heading to day two but he's like oh kyt got a long day two ahead of me so what do you think about that alex yeah, and actually, her Lucas yeah, mentioned the same thing. You know, he went eight and zero day one, I believe, and I think him and his opponent were just talking about that. And he's like, "Oh, that's really good day one." And he's like, "Yeah, I know, but there's still a lot more rounds to play. You know, still got seven more to play. Still got to play as hard as you know you did all the other rounds." So, you like the new change though uh, compared to before, or is it noticeable for you? Like I like it drawing. just because you you get out of the tournament at a reasonable time on Saturday night. Yeah, that's uh, it, that's really nice. Go, that was really nice. Yeah. Okay, so the, so so both of you are valuing the dinner part of the Saturday night of this new change mainly. Well, well, it's also just like you know being able to hang out with people because like you go you travel for a weekend and you know you still want to see them Saturday night, but like you're tired and you know you just want to go to your hotel room and. The extra hour you can go to a decent restaurant like the lineup if you have to wait 30 minutes to get a table it's fine um, yeah good point john like a lot of times with nine rounds sometimes like i might not make day two and i might find out already earlier and then like people aren't going to wait for you necessarily sometimes and you're right right I, I that's one thing i wish i had more time to do at gp is just to uh i'd love to play the tournament but i also would like to spend some amount of the time with people that I don't see as often, uh, especially, hey, all three of you. Um, and uh, that would give a, a better chance to do that. Usually, a lot of times, like nine rounds draining, it's just like, oh, I just eat somewhere quick and just pass out somewhere, especially if someone, uh, if if we have to play day two and we want to be fresh for day two, that's uh, often the case. Um, the, the biggest problem, I think the thing people will complain about, or the pros anyway, are the people who like to fly out of the 
of the site, like fire of the city on Sunday night, because adding an extra round is, is going to make a lot of those, you know, Sunday night fights impossible. But, um, I don't know. Like I found the Saturday was like, very pleasant. I went six, two. It's not like I had a great first day, but I, I didn't feel at any point that, Oh man, I can't believe I have to play three more rounds of magic because the rest, the remaining rounds felt like a reasonable amount of magic to play. And I was, you know, excited to play each of the rounds. Alex, I know it was a heartbreak for you on day two, but uh, what was your deck choice? And, and can you summarize your GP experience for us? I just ran back the same blue-white control deck I've been playing for a while. Um, a couple people did re- reasonably well with it at the PT. Um, Gabe Nassif had a really good record. And uh, so, like, one of the person... What are the, what are the unique characteristics of your list? How do you tell the difference between your list and, and some of the other blue-white lists? Um, I only, mine's only like a couple cards off of like a stock list you'd see. I have like an Elspeth Sun's champion in the main deck is the, the biggest difference probably. Uh, um, besides that, it's pretty stock. Oh, I also have, uh, guys to St. Traft in the board is, is not really that common, but yeah, that's a card I really like. And like, um, how did it play out? What are the matchups? Um, like you said, I had a good day one. I went seven, one day one. Um. My one loss was, what was it? I guess I don't remember, but day two, one, four, three, not great. Um, two of my losses were to two friends, though, who uh, one was on humans and one was on Eldrazi taxes, which can be kind of tough matchups. And, uh, you know, I just didn't really see the right cards. But, uh, I guess it softened the blow a little bit, losing to a friend. So I was kind of uh, rooting for them for the rest of the day. Uh, but yeah, you know, I cash ended up cashing at eleven and four and got a couple pro points. So overall, not too uh, disappointed. So are you playing like like? Go ahead, John. Well, I think that's another benefit of like the the change to the cut is you're going to have. I mean, I don't not every X four cash, but I think you're going to have more X fours cashing these events because. Even if you have to six zero for cash when you're at X three or five one, like enough people are going to go six zero that it pushes the the barrier, like the line down a little. Um, yeah, slightly more eleven fours are going to cash. So Alex, in the Seas list, you, you basically have one. Is it really close? Like you have one of every different planeswalker. Basically, you have Gideon of the Trials, one Jace, one Gideon Jura. Does your setup look yeah. similar? Uh, I guess Nassif's list is kind of unique in its, as its own right, but um, this, the standard's like two Gideon of the Trials, one Gideon Jura, and one Jace Architect of Thought. And I'm just running the same uh, thing, plus the additional Elspeth in the main. And uh, four Field of Ruin? Oh, four yeah, Field of Ruin, sure. yeah. Uh, any, any quick advice if someone wanted to pick up your list for, for this weekend before you get to mess around with Jace's? Uh, yeah, I would um, kind of play a stock list. I, the one change I made to mine personally is I, uh, I had originally two spells in there, um, but I cut one of those for a man. I changed one to a mana leak, so small change, but yeah, that's what I would run for uh, this coming weekend if I had to. Alrighty. Um, I'm going to get, uh, before John has to go play dodgeball, we're going to try to get top four finisher Jonathan Zhang in. Um, 
Whoa. <laughs> Pretty windy on, on John's end, at least. Oh, it's not windy. I, I, live, I live in a basement and they're moving furniture upstairs, I guess. Okay, I but, think. Uh, sorry about that. I don't have a more focused mic. Oh, Alex oh. Tom was really, uh, really hyping up Blue White. Also, he, he had a shot. Like, he didn't do well in the draft portion of the PT, but he had a shot to go 10 0 and constructed with that deck. He ended up going 9 1, losing, I think, the second last round. He wanted, he wanted me to play that. Yeah, he, he did. I just uh, didn't have the guts to pull the trigger on the deck. He was next. the other one who did really well at the PT with uh, Blue White, yeah. So what type of like what type of dodgeball is this, John? Five on five? Like what? What are the? Um, it's okay. So uh, I just Tyler Woolley, who I played on Team Canada with uh, a few years back with Andy. Also, um, he I moved to Victoria. He lives in Victoria, and he's like, hey, I play uh, softball in the summers, and we play dodgeball in the winter. We need some people for dodgeball. You want to play? So I'm like, sure, I guess. I like I like intramural sports. I like ultimate frisbee things like that. So I thought, why not? It's uh, I think we play six on a side. We end up having like nine, and we sit three people. They they do the same. It's co-ed. I think you have three guys, three girls, and you just throw nerf balls at each other all day. <laughs> is there is there any strategy? Because we all know you're so methodical, Peyton Manning. So <laughs> or are you just well, I, I'm only I've only played twice now, but. So there's not really any strategy that people use. They just sort of line up against the back wall and try not to get hit. But I think if you oh. wanted to, yes. you, could, you could get pretty strategic. Um, so one of the things, if you catch the ball, not only do you eliminate the person who threw it, but you bring somebody back on, but it has to be the first person, first person who died. So when we start, we're always trying to get their best player out, but we should just get their worst player out because that way, if somebody if somebody catches the ball, their worst player comes back on. But like no one wants to target the worst player. <laughs> also, we play with four balls at once. Each team starts with two, and people just start throwing balls. But like it's way easier to get someone if your whole team has four balls. So you should just never be the first one to throw the ball. But then no one's going to do anything. So like you just do anyway. I also think there could be some like zoning tactics where like you have someone. Near near the middle line, making sure that they can't advance. And like, if it's someone good who has a, if you have one ball and they have three, but that one guy standing in the front, like they can't really throw very easily at your other players. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's things you could do. I love it. But I think we're just gonna throw balls at each other, and that's it. That's what we're doing. So. All I can envision is is all day John just sitting like in a in a coffee place just writing out plays for his his upcoming dodgeball match. <laughs> Sorry guys, Omaha, Omaha. <laughs> oh yeah, we started. We started. I introduced. Well, not. I suggested we at least number the people we're aiming at instead oh, of like <laughs> pointing at them so they don't all know. Like, hey, the ball's coming. Like, we would just say, okay, throw it at him, and we're just all pointing at him. I'm like, well, why don't we just pick a number from one to six with one being on one side? That, that was what I suggested for my second week after the first one. But, you know, whatever. It's fun. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. I just had my first uh, – uh, it was like a bone, nerf bone arrow type thing at, at my girlfriend's uh, birthday party. And, uh, yeah, after oh, yeah, why don't you do that? Was it that, fun? It's really fun. And then after a while, it's like, hey, we should – probably come up with some strategies next time so good to hear uh let's see if we got so john i'm gonna call you john i'm gonna call him jonathan as it says on the screen jonathan are you on 
Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yes, yep. we can hear you perfectly. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is Mr. Grishel Brand, Grishel Brand himself. And Andy, you know him from, from Forum Fame? He's a final nub, isn't that right? From the MTG Salvation Forums. Yeah, that is indeed my name. Uh, thanks for having me here. How do you know this, Andy? How do you know this <laughs> random facts? Because uh, uh, Andrew Tingeke from Kingston uh, talks to him about Grishol Brand all the time. <laughs> oh. that, that must be uh, AMAT, right? ATAC. It is AMAT. It is AMAT. You're right. On the forums, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I talked, to him a bunch of, talked to him a bunch of times about Grishol Brand, yeah. So, so Andy, you would you would probably say this is uh, the online authority. That we this have is here. the guy. The guy. The guy. We have the guy. <laughs> we have the guy. The guy has been listening in on his match with with John, finalist John, and uh, I think you messaged me. You have some some different opinions. Well, let's hear it right now. Yeah. So, uh, John Stern is on, right? Yeah, I'm on. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, good. Good to talk to you again. Good games, by the way. That was a yeah, really uh, well played and tight game there. Yeah, so I was actually listening to you guys about the uh, a few things here. One, the fact that um, came in, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, I play poker myself, and uh, I try to I try my hardest to not give out any uh, body language reads. But when the bridge came in, I was just <laughs> just panicking inside, you know, because it wasn't like we had deckless deckless, right? So it wasn't something that was completely un- uh, unexpected. I was mentally listing the number of cards that I would think uh, you would consider to uh, bring it in, uh, bring yeah. in before bridges, like uh, two rips, two ley lines, uh, two skull cracks. I think are um, auto includes maybe and path. So that I was thinking that might be six or eight cards that you probably would prefer before the bridge. So I made a calculated um, uh, decision to not bring in shattering Spree. So when I yeah. saw the bridge, I was face melting <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as, you, as you guys saw on the uh on coverage there i checked my sideboard a few times so um no sprees there and my out i would say um i've never i've never played in uh grand prix top eight before there was really high pressure and even though the deck is uh, the archetype is something that i really know inside out i i must admit that yes i, I did panic a bit because if I took a deep breath and thought about this rationally, I think what I would have done was to keep my breach in and try to spike aggressive brand and go for the board revenues kill. Um, the one fact that people, uh, the commentators nor the chat uh, didn't, what, what were not privy to was that um, I had bottomed my only metamorphose to the bottom um, on turn two. So uh, summoning the world spine worm did let me shuffle the metamorphose back uh, randomly somewhere and uh, if you can tell i was working towards the uh metamorphose into the engineered explosive out um, the entire game one thing that i definitely picked up on when i was playing against you so there was points in the game where i didn't know how you could win but you clearly had a plan so i was definitely not counting anything like you were doing things quickly you had a plan and i felt that there was something you would be able to do that would make me lose the game and i wasn't sure what it was but uh it definitely right. felt like you knew what you were doing. <laughs> so the other interesting point is that um, I've, I had a bunch of guys um, ask me why I killed Eidolon, and I was listening to your, uh, you guys talking about it. And um, John, I think you and a few others were um, discussing whether you guys you should have uh, suicide attacked into the worm. And I was considering I, it, yeah. 
I think it's a fair point. Um, I thought about it uh, for a while after the game, and I think the conclusion is that the stalemate that uh, was being presented and that we played Drago, uh, Drago for a few turns, I think that was an illusion and that you, John, had all the agency over whether Eidolon is beneficial to you or not, and you could remove that um, illusion of the stalemate at any time because you have Path, you have uh, Lightning Bolts, Rift Bolt, Geluxes, you could kill the Eidolon any time that um, you deemed the Eidolon was inconvenient to you. So uh, against a good player like you, I did not want to leave that um, in your hands, in your control. So um, that's why I removed the Lightning Axe. And yeah. also, um, even if you have the Eidolon out um, and you're, you're um, trying to be careful to not go over five cards, um, every burn spell is three damage to me and two damage to you. So you're winning that race either way. So. In my opinion, I don't think that um, leaving the idol on and the hoping that you would miss the line is a winning line. And in fact, you could have just attacked with the idol on any time. So I don't want to give the agency. I, was, I thought it might have been a mistake for me to not suicide it earlier. There was a point where I was like, okay, I could just do that. And then I, I was thinking, well, what if you breach a Gristlebrand into block and I don't have a Skullcrack? That could like really change the math. Right. Right. So, that's a good point. Like, actually, you know what? I, I wasn't even really sure if the island being play was good or bad for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't pull the trigger on it the second turn. And then once I didn't do that, I felt like I should just keep waiting and seeing what you would do. Right. Uh, it, it, but, the onus was on me to um, make the proactive move, right? Because you have the inevitability and you, you, have, you had to look at my sideboard and my outs really were um, for Brigmos or Engineered Explosive. And, right. and then you dropped your Leyline and my plan just exploded there. But, you know, that's another story. I actually probably incorrectly didn't board in the Leylines for Game 2, mm -hmm. uh, only for Game 3. Um, like and I, and like like I saw that actually during sideboarding you were trying to count how many things I boarded in and out and I had a really tough time with it. Um, I think at one point I bored out some idolons. Um, mm. I I think I yeah it was because I mean I'm boarding in a lot of reactive cards that don't play into my game plan. Um, yeah. Also, like I was talking to Mike Segrist later and he did not think I should board in cards like Path to Exile. Yeah, it, it was tricky for my side to come up with a good cyber plan. So I understand not being sure what I would do. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, um, the benefit of playing a rogue deck like Gristle Brand, for example, is you know even a very capable and experienced player like yourself um, doesn't have a very good grasp on um, what you want to sideboard. Um, for what it's worth, I think Path is good but not great. I think Bridge is good but not great, and I think Leyline is good but not great. Um, yeah, because the deck attacks on a lot of different axes. So, but having two of the three um, is beneficial. Having one of the three may not be enough. Right. Okay. Who's schooling who? I'm. Yeah. I'm I, Andy. Andy, who's schooling who here? I'm not sure. Who's, who's schooling? <laughs> if it was, if this was that sports show, who has the most points right now? Yeah. It's got to be the the, the Grishol brand <laughs> expert, the number one guy. <laughs> Um, I, I wasn't. I wasn't aware that we're in a debate or whatnot. You know, just I, I just like to think about um, games a lot afterwards, after the fact, and you know, um, what seems like an easy deck. You know, the A plus B combo stigma that um, we get um, is anything but that, as you guys uh, could tell, right? And um, yeah. Um, but by the way, um, the chat or no, the commentators 
probably did not have a uh, have much of an idea, but the out at the end of game three was um, metamorphosing metamorphosing into a pack negation. Um, hope that you only have one, one burn spell, counter skull crack, draw engineer explosive, and try to win there. There you go. I'm 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 mind blown. Um, I didn't tell you I didn't tell you before the show, uh, John, that this is actually based off. Uh, first Strength's actually based off of First Take, which is a sports debate show. So oh. we're sort of in a debate. So we're giving you all the points, or a lot of them. Andy's, uh, Andy, you have the points, and Andy's giving them to you. So Yeah, I know I'm lost Sweet. with Andy. <laughs> yeah, 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 true, true. You. Andy's not going to give you any points. John, I, we don't want to take all your time because you got dodgeball to go to. So where can people find you if you want to be found? <laughs> um, I mean, I have a Twitter. It's John Stern MTL. You can follow me there. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I mean, I'm not on YouTube or Twitch or anything, but you know, I tweet once in a while. All right. If, uh, if you got a nickname for John, hit him, hit us in the comments. Yeah, hit, hit, yeah, don't hit me with nicknames. Yeah. Hit, so, hit, hit Andy, anyone, anything that, you know, be more original, something that doesn't have to do with age, um, would be preferable. Andy. Oh, you can, you can send me all the nicknames. You could just drop them in my inbox. The grandfather of Canadian magic, the grandpappy, Father Time himself. <laughs> there you go. All the right, book, the bookkeeper of Canadian magic. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure, Jonathan. Do you know who John Stern was prior to playing against him? Oh, I, 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 I've definitely heard of his name. I know he was a pr- pretty prominent uh, Canadian professional. I know he uh, played a lot of affinity, and uh, that's why I was a bit uh, surprised to hear that he was actually playing Burn in the Pro Tour as well as here. Oh, same reaction as as us as well. Um, John, John uh, we'll stay with Jonathan for a bit longer. Uh, John, thank you for, so much for coming on, as always. Yeah, no problem. Marcel, and good luck. Good luck in dodgeball and, and employable strategies. We're, we're curious if they work out. Okay. <laughs> that was John Stern, um, I guess godfather of Canadian magic for now, and uh, got his thoughts on Modern Burn. But I'm I'm excited now, oh, man. I'm excited, Andy. You've got me hyped about Jonathan here. It's the hype. Tra- it's the hype train. What's what's your name on Moto? Is it also uh, final? Note? It's also final up. Yeah, yeah. You also do pretty well on Moto, even though the deck is actually broken on Magic Online, right? Like the if you can't yep. splice and target, is it right, or it'll just restart Moto? Basically, um, it's been quite frustrating since last summer. So basically, if you try to cast an arcane spell and splice Gorio's Vengeance, which actually targets, um, the, the game will crash and rewind itself to the very beginning, negating everything you've done up until that point. But you're still playing it? I'm, I'm confused, Andy. He's still doing well with it? Well, the the um, the the most most uh, common use of the splice onto arcane um, mechanic is actually uh, nourishing shoal splicing through the breach. So um, I'm losing percentage points by not being able to do the Goro's Vengeance line, but I just like turn tearing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really stupid to me that through the breach gets cheaper when you splice it. It's like one of the only ones that does that. Exactly. <laughs> So ridiculous. I agree. So, Jonathan, it sounds like you've been playing this deck for a long time. Just been your pet deck for for ages. Like, how long have you been on set on this deck? Well, um, I used to play a lot of Magic in high school, and then work just kind of got in the way. And I actually got back into um, uh, 
Magic and first time for the first time in, into competitive Magic a year ago because um, GP Vancouver was in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Modern and uh, February of 2017 and um, I want to do some broken things and uh, one of the first decks I've actually, I, I had actually picked up was uh, Cheerios because I like doing degenerate things and then they print a fatal push and you know that, that was not a good idea anymore. Um, but I, I was always a fan of uh, Bob Wang's uh, work, and when he was touting Gresho Brand for a little bit there, watching his games on YouTube, it really um, hooked me into pl- um, trying out the deck. And it's a seven-seven flying lifelink Yom target that you can cheat on um, uh, into play on turn two. And I've actually won. <laughs> I've actually won on turn one a few times as well. So who doesn't like doing that, right? And then you, you wow, and. So how, remind me. So it's been how long? Uh, just over a year, I think. Wow, just over a year, and somehow Andy know, knows the legend of <laughs> of the Grand Master. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a legend at all. That's like way, way over the over the top, I think. But um, I, I have put in a lot of reps, and uh, uh, people think it's a dying archetype. People think it, it falls to uh, rest in peace, Graf Digger's cage, and. It has no, it has no viability in the competitive scene, and I'm, I'm just, I think wrong, and I think um, I, my records um, uh, speak for themselves. I've won uh, the Modern Challenge uh, once. I've, I've top aided a bunch of them face to face, as you guys saw. Um, I, I was second place um, in September, uh, top top twenty in uh, February as well, and it's just my pet deck. And I think that uh, people are wrongly dismissing that deck, so that's why I keep harping on it. Even though I do have uh, other viable decks like Grits of Shadows, right? How do you think the, the metagame has evolved for the deck for you? Has it gone more favorable, less favorable, or about the same for you? So it, it's ebbed and flew, uh, flown. Is that the word? Uh, anyways, yeah. yeah. So it, it, um, Infect definitely was one of the worst matchups out there. So when Probe was banned, I was ecstatic, and then um, people started to discover Grits of Shadows and the proper way to deploy <laughs> shadows and um, so for those people, people who don't know, the worst type of uh, matchups for a combo deck like this is A, uh, Threat plus, uh, plus uh, Disruption, like Grixis Shadows or even Grixis Delver. Um, B, um, really like unusual decks that perfectly um, uh, combat on the axis you're trying to attack, like Lantern. And C, the combo decks that are fundamentally faster than you, like Storm and Infect. So pe- people always joke that Grisho Brand is the worst version of Storm, and I kind of do agree because it has the uh, ceiling on... Grisho Brand has a ceiling of a turn to kill, but uh, the fundamental average turn of Grisho Brand is probably slower than Storm, and plus Storm has interaction as well. So um, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say that um, Grisho Brand is unequivocally better than Storm because I honestly don't think so, but I like casting my Grisho Brands. So yeah, Temple decks are bad. Um, so, uh, so good matchups are um, dirtily mid-range decks, uh, blue-white X control decks, and slower, um, slower combo decks. Not to mention um, any big mana decks like Valkyrie and Tron. Like th- those are laughable. I have records of like over seventy percent win- wins against like Green X Tron and uh, Valkyrie. So, if your local store has those types of uh, people, go play Gristle Brand and make them regret their life choices. <laughs> What did you face during the GP? 
I faced a very, very fair slew of matchups. Um, obviously, I came in hoping to play Valkyrie, even though I don't, I don't think, I think Valkyrie has been declining a bit. And uh, uh, Green X Tron, as well as, you know, Jeskai, Blue White, uh, Jen, and all that. Um, in terms of the matchups I actually faced, um, Death and Taxes, uh, Humans, uh, I actually played Lucas um, uh, in the backup feature matchup uh, against uh, Black Green. Uh, we lost, uh, I lost a very close three game match there. Uh, let's see what else. Green X Tron, um, uh, two chess guys, including uh, Jonathan Rossum um, in uh, round 15. He was a very, very good opponent. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, good banter back and forth, and he was a very capable player. But as I said, um, Blue White X is a very, very good matchup um, for us because um, they need to respect our ability to combo off at instant speed. If you tap out for anything like uh, end of turn electrolyze or uh, Ascanta, like you're dead. And Jonathan Rossum actually tapped out for uh, Ascanta activation uh, in game one. Um, oh. And I killed him on the spot. And game two is even better because um, the deciding, ma- deciding game of the match, he had a rune halo on Four Briggs Most Enraged, a rune halo on Grizzlebrand, and he just clicked uh, my only World Spine Worm to the bottom. So I summoned two uh, spirit guides, uh, raced his clique, and on the very last turn, he, he was about to win the race by Cryptic Commanding, uh, tapping my two monkeys. Um, attack <laughs> Negation, Cryptic Command, uh, attack with Sumerian Spirit Guide, bring him to one, Collective Brutality, drain you for Xaxis. So that was pretty epic. I, I, Andy, am I wrong? Every, Andy and Alex, every story, he makes it sound, every story is sound epic. <laughs> well, these all happen. I mean, I wish, I wish that would have been on camera. That would have been sick. <laughs> I, I, I was playing beside Dan and uh, Dan Syed, so I wish I was here, actually. It was a very uh, well-played and epic uh, two-game match. Uh, yeah, the, deck, the deck's a blast to watch. Like, like, its, it's ceiling is, is the highest ceiling in Modern, I think. It does the most powerful broken thing in Modern by like a reasonable amount. Maybe you could argue that Storm is, does more broken thing, but... Like putting in a seven seven feels a lot cooler than just like grape shotting an opponent out after like some gifts package, and <laughs> it it's a very fast deck and can it can win any bad matchup by how fast it is, and the the utility of the splice cards is actually incredible, especially against the control decks where you think all they have to do is counter your two spells, but when you start splicing onto other spells, then you do it end of turn, then they have to counter that, and if they do, then you just go for it on your turn, and. It's just, it has a good good tools to fight those decks. It's it's a little too inconsistent. That's the only reason why it's not like doing incredibly well, right? Am I wrong to think that? Andrew, you made made a lot of good points there, and um, yeah, splice is definitely a very good weapon against control. There. Um, as for the inconsistency, I do agree, but uh, not to the extent that people think it is, because it's kind of a bias, right? Because when you draw 30 cards out of your 60-card deck and keep whiffing on Aggressive Brand or Goro's Vengeance, you feel really bad. So you tend to remember those uh, distinctly a lot more than the, ter- the times that you do grind out a win. So I would, I would tell everyone to say that, yes, it's, in- it's more inconsistent than other decks, especially with decks like Serum Vision or Tutors and all that, but I wouldn't call it a glass cannon inconsistent decks like Cheerios or you know, Narsic Cannon. It's nowhere near that. 
Jonathan, earlier you you mentioned how Storm you, you conceded that Storm might be better. So is there a re- like when does one pick Grishel Brand over Storm outside of what Andy said that it's cooler to have a seven seven? So I do think that there are meta games which do uh, which does favor Grishel Brand, and that's the uh, that's the meta game where bolts, uh, path, and fatal pushes are abundant, which actually might be the upcoming uh, meta game with the Jason Blood. Upgrades, right? So uh, uh, I'm sure you guys have uh, thought this over, but Lightning Bolts definitely is uh, going to make a comeback because of um, Jason, Jason Mind Sculptor there, and even against Bloodbraid as well. So when you can blank so many cards of those blue, white, X, or those three color mid range and control decks um, in game one, it gives you a huge percentage point um, uh, in, uh, edge over Storm. So I would think that that type of um, uh, metagame is something that you can excel in. Hmm. So something something to consider once once Jason uh, like even do even better once Jason uh, Blueberry Alpha are back in. Um, should people like there's there's still some tournaments. I think there's some SCG. I know there's a face face games open in Montreal this weekend. Uh, Jonathan, who, would someone be wise to just if they have some sort of experience with your combo deck to take the seventy five or other changes you would make for this final tournament before the the, the unbanned cards come in. So the list that I'm playing now, actually, if you if you um, check back at my uh, online uh, MTG Goldfish history, um, it's only moved by one or two cards over the last few months. It's something I've been optimizing for a while. Um, if I were to play a tournament, big tournament again this weekend, I actually would not uh, change a thing. And some some of the very some of the marginal choices on my list is um, something like the three Bontus Last Reckoning, for example, or the Engineered Explosives, and that's a uh, me paying homage to the rise of the humans and uh we did have a lot of humans in the x1 x2 brackets all day during gp toronto and humans is a very bad matchup and not only that there's a bunch of you know mardu pyromancer and other grindy dirtily mid-range decks that do try to win with scavengers and parmagoids etc so those are very well positioned to combat that type of deck so it is very metagame dependent, right? So if you if you expect a bunch of um, humans and infect and lantern and all that, I would not recommend it. Oh, sh- shadows as well. Um, but if you expect a lot of dirtly, uh, basically, if you expect the format to slow down a bit, I think Crystal Brand is a great deck for you to play because this is modern, right? So at the end of the day, you can metagame all you want, but um, you still have to play the matchup bingo game well. And if you play the matchup bingo game well, you'll get there because Crystal Brand has, in my opinion, one of the highest power level of any modern decks. All right. Wow. Andy, any any final comments? No, it was it was great to have you on and talk about talk about the deck and why like the the goods and the bads. And I like that you're you're honest about it. Like a lot of people with their with their pet decks which I hate the name pet deck because it sounds like insulting, but with their deck of choice, that isn't the best deck. I, I like when someone can at least be realistic about its flaws because sometimes people get too attached because they want to feel super smart that they're on this deck that nobody else is on. But you got to recognize the problems with the deck. And like you said, you change a couple cards every, every few months, and that's the kind of tuning you have to do to get the deck past the hurdle, and you have to be able to recognize weaknesses in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan had, had talked to me before coming on the show this week that you know, if possible, if, if time permits, 
maybe you'll have an article uh, about the deck uh, on, on Mana Deprived. So hopefully we're going to get that. I, I'm actually looking forward to that, even though it's a type of deck that I've never played before in my life and, and would find, I find picking up such a combo that intimidating. But I'm definitely taking a look. You've it's <laughs> definitely gotten me excited uh, to try this out. Um, yeah, I mean, what's, what's up? What's next for you in terms of tournaments, uh, Jonathan? So um, my, my work schedule doesn't really permit me to travel around, and it's great to have a pro terrain invite. Um, I've really never been a standard or drafting guy. In fact, um, one of the last things I did before I left um, was to play in a bunch of drafts that I've otherwise never played in just to accrue the pro, uh, enough um, uh, Planeswalker points to get my buys. So I think that um, given that I have the pro terrain invite now, I, I'd like to um, start honing up on my standard and uh, draft game. Um, I'd still like to play any of the um, modern um, modern tournaments that would come within my proximity. Um, I still love play, I would still love to play Crystal Brand anytime I can, but I think my focus is on the Pro Tour right now. Righty, actually, we'll wrap up the show. Where can people find you outside of uh, the forums? Are you on any? Like, I, I was able to I managed to, to get your name, find you on Facebook, but <laughs> are you are you using Twitter or are you like? Can we just find you on Reddit or on MTG Salvation? What are the best avenues to get in touch with you if people want some advice, like like Andy's friends? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um, I, I don't have any uh, any of the mainstream uh, social media outlets. Outlet. I don't have any accounts there right now, but you can find me on Final Nub at, uh, on Reddit as well as the MTGZ uh, Salvations. Um, I, I like that people are trying to interact um, within the thread in the MTG uh, Salvation exactly. I like posting a bit of, um, you know, puzzles because uh, uh, these combo decks do present a lot of marginal puzzle situations that um, you really need to think about afterwards in terms of what the optimal line is and whatnot. And I like, um, lately we've had a lot of people coming to the threads saying that, hey, you know, I, I saw you, your performance at XYZ. Can you tell me more uh, Marble Tech? Can you tell me sideboarding guides, etc.? So um, I, I do try to answer all of these in a thread as well as um, uh, on Reddit as well. So if you guys have any, um, if anyone out there has any questions about um, Russell Brand, yeah, do let me know and I'll, I'll try my best to help you out. Wow, um, I'm. I hope I'm not, I don't. I hope I don't come across as overhyped to to the listeners or viewers of the podcast. I generally am. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's very impressive. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully, we'll get you on for a longer uh, period of the time uh, next time you are. I expect. I expect we'll have you on again at some point. Hopefully, hoisting a trophy or something <laughs> like that. But uh, thank you so much for coming on, Jonathan. No, it was great being here. Nice meeting you guys. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Have a good night. You too. So that was Jonathan Zhang. Um, wow. Like someone I saw that who was doing well in the face-to-face games.com. Uh, Modern Opens. Finished in top four. Uh, well, I saw, actually, I saw a tournament report. I was messaging him. It's like in Reddit, it's not very uh, ironed out. It's very impromptu. But it had a lot of interesting details. He was going really in depth about the deck. So I sent him a message like, if you want to write a full fledged article, I'd be really interested to read because it looks like you really have a lot of interesting thoughts on the archetype. And in real life, turns out he's just, it just seems like an awesome dude. Um, I don't know what else to say, Andy. I'm really, I'm overhyped because it's like exceeded my expectations and didn't know he was like an authority. I thought 
you know, maybe he's just someone who picked up the deck, played it now and then, but didn't know that he had put so much time. And just hearing, I think it's the fact that I was hearing him and John Stern just talk about their match and their back and forth and what they were thinking and, and not thinking. And then John thinking, oh my God, like that, that moment was just amazing. Yeah, he did a really good job at like uh, recalling exactly uh, what he was thinking of during the games, which is something that's very hard, especially like being removed from an event that is so big and so many things happen. He played a lot of magic. So being able to recall exactly what you were thinking about in those key moments and then being able to talk about it afterwards is that's how you get good. So, And I appreciate that he admitted that he crapped his pants when the bridge uh, came down, that he lost his oh. poker face. I thought I thought he was just about to like be that guy who's like I wasn't worried at all. Oh yeah, I, I I thought yeah I thought you were. I'm like you were wrong about the poker face stuff. I thought that's what he was gonna say. No no no, he was just like yes, I certainly was terrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did not expect that. I, Alex, I thought he was gonna be like yeah, I was trying to give out, I was trying to bluff or something. Yeah. Like, oh no, I left my shattering speech on the sideboard. I thought he was going to say, yeah, I play poker a lot. I've analyzed myself, and I know I give no tells, so I don't know what you and David Rude are talking about. That's what I thought he was going to say. Um, anything else? Uh, anything uh, we'll wrap out? Uh, wrap up? Anything from you guys that you want to mention? Plug? Actually, maybe you guys I mean, actually... Me and Andy. Yeah, you should say me and Andy probably uh, some videos. Yeah, you, you guys should set up the next POV. People are saying maybe one of you play Blood Bright. Man, I have a tough time saying that name. <laughs> BBE versus Jace. And uh, we're going to see that. Maybe Monitor. That'd be interesting, especially Alex piloting uh, Blue White and Andy piloting some sort of uh, possibly Jun deck. He, he wouldn't just be playing Grixis? I got some ideas. I got some ideas brewing. I'll Jund him out. Yeah. So we'll, <laughs> I'll Jund him off the planet. We will check that out on the next POV. Hopefully you guys can put that together this week, next week. Excited to, to see that happen. Actually, Andy, do you even have them on, on Mana Traders? They must have shot up, though. That's, that's the issue, I think. Or maybe not. Who, who knows what the online prices are? I'm not sure. I'm sure, I'm sure you can get them through Mana Traders. Uh, it just, just means it might cost a lot to rent them like per... Oh, I never come close to using all my hours or whatever, so... Okay. Um, shout out to, once again, First Strike Nation producers Jonathan Goodkow, Smirching, Jay Thomas, Eden, Sasha, Papo, Derek Pite, this place Ginger, or Casual Ginger, Matthew Kelly, Adrian Merchantson, and again, my secret admirer. I emailed you yesterday, and I'm hoping to hear back because I want to thank you for all this time. So you've been, I think you're the only oldest uh, supporter. Oh, no, you're not, but. One of the biggest supporter of all time, and I still don't know who you are. Still haven't heard back from you. No emails. Um, yeah, make sure to support the cast. Uh, you can go check out patreon.com slash first strike if you liked any of content. Uh, pledge a dollar. If not, I mean, I think just sharing the cast or just talking about it, just liking or subscribing is actually likely worth probably more than a dollar. So if you can just do that, I know a lot of people just listen. They, they haven't pledged, and they talk to me about the show all the time, and I really appreciate that. I, I respond all the time, and uh, to see um, a lot of you. It doesn't really matter if how much you pledge. It just matters that you enjoy the show. But for those of you looking to get an insight into uh, what of these guys or Lombardi, Brian Gottlieb are doing uh, for their upcoming tournaments, check out the First Strike Nation and uh, 
All the details are on the Patreon page. And with that, like, subscribe, and we'll see you next Monday. I don't have to do another show tomorrow. So good night, guys, and thank you for being in the chat. I'll stay in the chat for a bit if some of you are still there. So ciao, guys.